Hey everybody, uh, can y'all hear me? Is everyone, am I, am I being loud enough? I'm usually, the complaint usually with me isn't that I'm being too soft, I'm being too loud, but I guess I don't have any mic, so I'm gonna, just gonna, higher, more? I don't, I, I feel like I'm already yelling anyway, Zay, I'm just gonna talk. Um, thank you though. So, my name is Ward Evans, I'm the lame duck intern here at RUF, um, as, uh, 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 um, as y'all may know, Elliot is not here uh, tonight, so I'm not only the lame duck intern, but I'm your campus minister for the night, so that's cool. Um, where's Ben? I'm the captain now, wherever you are, Ben. I told him I was going to make that joke, so here we are. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm leaving in May, and I'll go get married, which is exciting, and, I, and I'll start law school after that, which is also exciting. Um, but I'm excited to be here with you guys tonight, talking. Um, I'm really excited to be talking about Exodus. It's, uh, it's a book about... I mean, the Bible's about God, but it's, the Exodus is a book about an insecure dude with a stutter, which is me at all times, but me specifically right now here talking to y'all. So we'll all just try and get through this together. Um, let's, um, if you'll turn on the back of your bulletins, we'll be in Exodus 4, uh, verses 18 through 31. So I'll read it if y'all will follow along with me. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you, will, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here's the good part. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Will you all pray with me? Father, thank you for bringing us all here tonight. Um, thank you for your word, even when sometimes it's confusing and we aren't entirely sure um, what's being said, or it's at least hard to determine. I uh, pray that you would um, help us to um, seek after you in these next couple minutes as we dive into this passage. In your name uh, I pray, amen. So first off, I've got to say I'm really disappointed the roadside circumcision didn't make the cut for the Prince of Egypt. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was just maybe too too difficult to animate, or maybe it wouldn't fit into a musical number or what. Um, but they left it out of there. And really, though, you can't blame them, right? Like this kind of comes out of the middle of nowhere, and it doesn't really have anything else to do. It's, it seems like it doesn't have anything else to do with what happens before or after it. And you wouldn't really be able to blame God for leaving this out either, right? Like, if he hadn't have put this in the Bible, it seems like our understanding of Exodus wouldn't really be changed. Instead, we just get this 
random one-off, um, which actually reminds me of, uh, of a book I read. Have any of y'all read or watched or heard of The Hunt for Red October? Yeah, okay. So I, I love it. Uh, I guess it's maybe more of a stereotypically guys thing, but I would recommend it to all of y'all. So it's about this Russian, um, this Russian submarine captain who's looking to defect to the U.S. during the Cold War. And the submarine is named the Red October, so thus the, there's the name. And, um, and uh, the Russians are hunting him, and the Americans are trying to help him, and all this intrigue and all this stuff goes down. But in the book, about two-thirds of the way, in, way into the story, the author opens up a chapter by talking about this completely different submarine. And I'm not – like not just talking about it. It goes into intimate detail about what its name is, what its operational history is, who served on it, all these things, and – it's this beat up old – it's this unused submarine, and you're reading it, and I was thinking at least, what the – why are we wasting my time with this? This doesn't seem to have any like point. I want to get back to the story. But as you read on, as you come to the end of the book, you find out that this submarine that you thought was kind of irrelevant was important. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't a, just a random throwaway. The author put it in there because it was important to the overall narrative, and I would encourage us – to think about this story the same way. You know, history is selective, right? Like, there's not enough time to write down everything that happens. So the fact that this was included in the Bible means that God thinks it's important um, and that it's important for us today. So to see why this is important, um, I think we need to begin by looking at God's declaration of Israel as the firstborn. Um, now, we know how this passage ends, right? Moses goes to the elders of Israel, and he tells them everything that God told him to tell him, and he does all those things, and they believe him. And I, Of course, it's not quite that easy. You know, There's the rest of the book that happens, but the story ends with them, be, the story ends with them believing him. Um, but I actually think the more important parts of the story are in the beginning and the middle. Uh, it's not necessarily the end. It's kind of – it's the climb, to borrow from Miley. Um, so in verse 22, God declares that Israel is his firstborn. Well, what does that mean? So, to know what that means, we, we need to look at the cultural context of the time. So in the ancient Near East, being a firstborn was a huge deal. I mean I'm a firstborn son, so I still think it's a big deal. But it's really not that big of a deal anymore. Um, at the time, though, it, I mean, it was it. If you were the firstborn son, you were the cat's meow, you were the bee's knees, you were the big man on campus. You were, to put it in a way that maybe our cultural context here at State could identify with, you were like a roadrunner crossed with Dak Prescott. Okay, like that's kind of <laughs> who you were if you were a firstborn son. And, um, I mean, firstborns got a double portion of the inheritance. They... Um, they were able to boss their siblings around, and they were destined to lead the family one day, which all sounds pretty great, right? Yes, but along with all those rights of a firstborn came several responsibilities. So the long-term success of the family was, was on the firstborn son's shoulders. The family like rose or fell, lived or died by the firstborn. If you had a successful firstborn, then your family was honored, and if you had an unsuccessful firstborn, then your family was shamed. Um, and this, you know, this undoubtedly led to a lot of stress and a lot of bad stuff. That's why you know, we aren't told to run our families like this. But that was the reality of the time, and it remained the reality pretty much through the time of Jesus, if I'm – I think. Just 
work with me. We'll say that that's true. Um, now, some of you may be thinking, all right, Ward, why are you wasting my time with the history lesson here? Don't really care. Well, one answer would be because you have to listen to me, and I enjoy history. But another um, reason, it, the actual reason, is that I think it's really important for us to look at the cultural context of what the Bible says to understand what it is saying to us. Because we aren't hearing it the same way that they heard it, but we need to know how they heard it so we can hear it correctly. So what were they hearing? What did God say? That Israel is his firstborn. I mean, sure, we've gone over that. But that's a huge deal. If I was somebody living in and around Mesopotamia or Egypt at that time, I mean, that's hearing that the God of the universe said anybody was his firstborn would be insane to me. Because that means that God isn't a God who you placate or, you know, the sun doesn't shine or the rain doesn't fall or the Nile doesn't flood. This means that it, that. God, this God, the God of the universe, is a God who actually cares about people and who identifies with people so much that they're as firstborn sons to him, or to put it in our context, as roadrunner Dak Prescott's to him. And that's, that's, and that's important. That's awesome enough. But to say that Israel, a nation of slaves within the global superpower at the time, is his people, is his firstborn, that's, that would have been huge. Um, and that sounds great for Israel, right? You've got God as your father. That's cool. Um, but it came with a lot of responsibilities as well, just like being a firstborn at the time did. And if you don't, if you don't believe me, go try and make it through Leviticus. It's all just responsibilities that, that the Israelites had to do. Um, but there was one that I learned about when I was researching for this sermon. That was the, um, the responsibility of the firstborn of Israel. So in Exodus 13, Right before the Passover, God says – he declares that all the firstborn of Israel, um, men, like men and beasts, were his. Um, and now you, now you may think that since Passover was a unique event, that the ownership of the firstborn was a kind of like a one-time deal too. But God, God in Numbers 18 gives, um, gives guidelines for redeeming the firstborn thereafter. So God declared ownership – over the firstborn of Israel, men and animals, for forever. And he was incredibly serious about it. So serious about it, in fact, that we get this fun little incident in uh, verses 24 through 26. So y'all buckle up because we're going to go in here. Um, so the firstborn of Moses, Gershom, the one that was circumcised. Not just circumcised, but circumcised by his own mom, which wouldn't be a huge deal except for I'm pretty sure that so if Moses left Egypt, Egypt when, he was 30, when he was 40, which we know, and he returned to Egypt when he was 80, which we know, Gershom was probably an adult when this happened. Um, so that just adds you know, a whole other layer of fun to an already fun story. Um, so again, not super important, but – and I could be wrong. Some, you know, Elliot could come here and tell me that I'm wrong, but just thought that was interesting. Anyway, let's read exactly what, what's said here. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm just an intern. Uh, but I know people that went to seminary. And I think to really understand this, we need to know what the original Hebrew says, which is great because I don't know that. Um, 
So I am shamelessly stealing everything I'm about to say from other people, which originally I felt bad about, but in my time as an intern, I've discovered that pastors do that all the time, so I don't really feel that bad about it. Um, so first off, let's work off what we know. We know that the Lord is looking to put, put somebody to death, which means that somebody messed up, somebody goofed, someone did a bad thing. Um, we know what words were spoken, and we know that Gershom was circumcised. We can also infer that the, that the problem, the way somebody messed up, was Gershom not being circumcised. Now, it's not explicit in the text, but I think it's, it's a reasonable assumption given the fact that there was a problem before Gershom was circumcised, and there was not a problem after he was. So those are the things that we definitively know. Now, what we don't know, a.k.a. the rest of it, um, for starters, this, this passage is really, really difficult to translate. There are a lot of pronouns here, um, and figuring out who they refer to is really difficult. So grammatically, it's possible that God was trying to kill Moses or Gershom. It's also possible that Zipporah touched Moses or Gershom's feet with what she cut off. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Because Moses' name doesn't actually appear in any of these verses. Now, I know in the translation I read and, the, and in the translation y'all have, it says that she touched Moses' feet. But that's not what the text says. The text says his feet. So that's an interpretive decision by the translators. That's not actually mandated by the text. And if you were to read this passage in your Bible, it's it should have – if it uses Moses' name, it should have a footnote there that takes you down to the bottom of the page that says his. Because the Hebrew word there for Moses is just his. So it's mm, – yes, another thing. Thank you. So we also don't really know that when Zipporah says bridegroom of blood, she even means bridegroom of blood. Because, bride, because the word bridegroom there in Hebrew could mean um, father-in-law, mother-in-law – or son-in-law as well. There's, uh, um, the word doesn't just mean bridegroom. It really denotes, and again, here we go, the presence of a blood relationship through the institution of a covenant relationship. I'll say that again. The presence of a blood relationship through the institution of a covenant relationship. So um, marriage, is a good, marriage is a good example of this. So there, so a blood relationship is created when two people get married. Yes, between the two people, but between you know, each, each – the man and the woman and their respective you – know, their, their in-laws. So you know, like my future father-in-law is going to be my father-in-law, but he's going to be that because of a covenant relationship of marriage. So in this instance, circumcision could be that covenant relationship. So it's entirely possible that God intended to kill Moses for not circumcising Gershom, and then Zipporah stepped in and circumcised Gershom, and then Zipporah touched Moses with what she cut off and declared Moses a bridegroom of blood to her because of the circumcision. That's possible. But it's also possible that God intended to kill Gershom because Gershom wasn't circumcised. And that his mom circumcised him, potentially as an adult at this point in time, I'd like to remind y'all. Um, and then his mom declared him a covenant relative of blood with her. There doesn't have to be a gendered thing there. So that, that, that both of these are possible 
legitimate interpretations. Now, I'm not sure which one is more likely. Frankly, I don't want God to be trying to kill Gershom because I don't really think it's, think it's his fault that he wasn't circumcised. But at the same time, we just saw in Exodus and Numbers how God has a God has declared a right over the firstborn of Israel. So it's well within his right to cash in this debt that has been unpaid. And also, frankly, God doesn't really check with me before he asks. So just because I don't want something to happen doesn't mean that that's, that, that is not true. So for the sake of argument, I could take a side. But I'm not going to because I want you guys to you know, be able to think through this yourself and do your own research and logic your way out of it. Now, is that a cop-out? Absolutely. That is 100, 100% a cop-out. Um, but I also don't actually think that it's necessary for us to know the ins and outs of what happened for us to be able to know why it happened and what it means for us. I mean, let's think about what Moses Moses is on his way to do. He's on his way to go tell Pharaoh that God has declared Israel as his firstborn son and that he better let him free, let them free or he'll kill their or he'll kill God, will kill his. I'm trying to be real careful with pronouns tonight, guys. That's gotten us in trouble once before, I guess. Um so yeah, Moses was on his way to tell Pharaoh to let God's firstborn go. And God wanted Moses to realize that he, that he needed to understand the gravity of the situation before he went and did that. He couldn't just represent God to Pharaoh and be actively disobeying his command to circumcise his firstborn son. He couldn't demand Israel's release as God's firstborn without understanding the severity and the seriousness of God's right to the firstborn. As we talked about earlier, every man... And the firstborn male of every man and beast was God's. And a sacrifice had to be made to redeem them. God was going to set his firstborn free, but he needed to make sure Moses Moses knew that a sacrifice was going to have to be made to get that done. And he needed to make sure he knew that before he went to Egypt. Because, look, guys, like, we know what's going to happen, right? Elliot preached on the Passover a couple weeks ago. We can flip our pages of the Bible and read the Passover, and it's fine. But Moses didn't know what was going to happen. And he needed to, to understand just how seriously God took the firstborn to be able to go talk to the Israelites about Passover. Again, if you all have seen The Prince of Egypt, there's a song in there called uh, You're Playing with the Big Boys Now. Or it's, that's what I call it, I guess. Um, and... It's the best song in the entire movie. I will not be taking debates, no arguments, facts only. It's the best. But, um, you know, Moses is facing off with Pharaoh's court magicians, and what they're telling him is, you're playing with the big boys now. You're in Egypt. This is serious. And that's, that's what God is telling Moses through this story. You're playing with the big boys now, okay? You're in the big leagues. You need to, you need to take the firstborn very seriously, and you need to understand how seriously I take it, because I'm, I'm actually deadly serious about the firstborn. Um, Numbers 8 says, Every firstborn male in Israel, whether human or animal, is mine. God's speaking here. When I struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, I set them apart for myself. We see God's ownership of the firstborn in a very real, very tangible, and frankly, very terrifying way in the story of the Passover. These two stories are intimately connected, and understanding the Passover helps you understand this meeting on the road to Egypt and vice versa. It, it, scripture interprets scripture, guys. It's super cool. Um, again, 
being the firstborn gives rights as well as, responsib- as, well as responsibilities. Israel had special privileges as, as God's firstborn, right? I mean, the God of the universe became personally and intimately involved in freeing them from slavery. And not only that, but he then declared that he would be their God for forever. That's a huge deal. And it was by no merit of their own that he did this. But they also had special responsibilities. You know, God didn't declare a blanket amnesty for Israelite children in the Passover, right? Their kids could have died. Their firstborn sons could have died too. The only thing that saved them was the spilling of blood in their stead as the redemption price for their lives. And we take the story for granted now, but that had to have been weird. Again, weird and scary and terrifying and weird for the Israelites at the time. And Moses needed something like this to be able to explain what was going on and to be able to help the Israelites see and understand the Passover. Um, and in terms of what it means for us today, I think, we, I think there are a couple applications here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The first is that if God goes to all this trouble to formalize Israel's relationship to him as firstborn sons, then they can be... They can be secure in the security, I guess, for lack of a better term, of that relationship. Um, God tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 14 that they are, they are sons of God. Do you think that that transition from slaves to sons was a big deal to them? Um, of course it was. Now, look, obviously Israel didn't have a perfect track record after this. I mean you've got – they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they go do the rest of the Old Testament. So it's not like they're perfect. But throughout all of their sin, God doesn't stop pursuing them because they're, his, because they're his firstborn. Even in exile, when Israel was cast out of their land finally as punishment for breaking the covenant, God declared to the prophet Jeremiah that he would restore Israel to himself because, and I quote, he is a father to Israel— and Ephraim, which is just another name for Israel, is my firstborn. So being God's firstborn means he doesn't stop loving you or pursuing you, even when you're actively trying to push him away. Which is why it's so cool that in Galatians 4, God tells us through Paul that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through, Christ, through God. God rescued Israel from slavery to the Egyptians and made them sons. And he rescues us from slavery as well and makes us sons. Um, which, means, excuse me, which means just like he never stopped pursuing Israel, even when they were actively trying to fight him, he'll never stop pursuing us, regardless of what we're doing. Now, obviously nobody here was ever a slave to the Egyptians, or was ever a slave, hopefully no one out here was ever a slave physically. Um... All right, Colin, whatever. Um, Colin's being cheeky up here. Um, but we experience slavery all the same. Look, when you go to the gym for the 57th time that week, because you've got to have the perfect suko bod or the perfect spring break bod, that's slavery. When you're alone or when, when you've got an 8 a.m. test and you've got to be in bed by 11 – and you're alone in your room, and you start looking at porn or looking at whatever, and you roll over, and it's 3 a.m., and where's the night gone? That's slavery. 
When you go through life chasing the next party or chasing the coolest people or binging seven hours of Netflix because you can't stand the thought of being alone with your own self, that's slavery. Romans 6 says that before we're in Christ, we're all slaves to sin. And we can see that in all the ways that we try and be okay and try and find happiness and joy and security apart from God. But Christ came to set us free from slavery, to sin, to be sons of God. You see, in the Passover, the firstborn of Israel, of Israel were redeemed by the shedding of the blood of a lamb. In the same way, we're redeemed by the shedding of blood, but not just the blood of a lamb... The blood of the lamb. Yeah, that's what Passover is about. Um, the lamb who, in Colossians 1, is called the firstborn of creation. As I've said a ton of times tonight, being the firstborn comes with rights and responsibilities. Jesus, as the firstborn of all creation, has the greatest of both. Um, I just quoted from Colossians 1. That whole section in Colossians 1 says, He, being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has the name above all names, which upon hearing every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and worship. And that's his right. Um, that's, but, he was, but he received that name and was exalted to that place. Because he took on the responsibility of reconciling us to the Father. As the firstborn of, of all creation, Hebrews 10 tells us that, that Christ's enemies have been utterly defeated. Hebrews 1 tells us that God has made him the heir of all things. So, not just some of the things, all things. Everything that is a thing, Jesus is Lord of. And so in the same way that the firstborn in the ancient Near East, when the story, where the story comes from, inherited the wealth, power, and authority of their family, Jesus inherited the wealth – I know I'm stretching the definition of the term wealth, but work with me – wealth, power, and authority of the Father. But that's honestly pretty straightforward, right? I mean if Jesus is God and if Jesus was obedient to the Father in the way, unto the point of death, as Philippians 2 tells us – then doesn't it make sense for the Father to reward him in the way that he has? What's not as straightforward and what's a little bit more surprising is what Romans 8 tells us, which is that we are co-heirs with Christ. We received the spirit of adoption as sons. And Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's not, that's not a future. We, we are seated in, with Christ in the heavenly places now. That's... That's confusing because I'm here, uh, and I don't really know what that means, but I think Hebrews 12 helps us to understand it about as well as we can. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
And to the assembly of the firstborn, catch that, the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the ultimate firstborn who was and is and is to come. He is greater than us, and we owe him worship and obedience and honor and glory and our very lives. But he died to make us firstborns as well and co-heirs with him. All of us are firstborn sons through Jesus. Now, I've been talking about firstborn sons the entire night. And frankly, if I was a girl, I would maybe have a little bit of an issue with the verbiage. I mean, we're called sons of God, not daughters, right? Like, you know, is, is the Bible misogynistic? Is Ward misogynistic? Not. Um, but... Um, just to clarify that right quick. Um, but, you know, if I was a girl, you know, I might have some questions. And I think that's fair. But what I, would argue, what I would argue is that the Bible uses the term son not in a biological sense, but in a legal descriptive sense. Again, cultural context helps us out here. So, unfortunately, even in the New Testament, men were held in higher regard than women. The Bible doesn't condone that, but... It was a reality of the time. So, you know, sons received more inheritance than daughters or even could inherit. And daughters maybe weren't – I don't think they were even able to inherit um, sometimes, depending on the civilization, I guess. Um, So when when God is trying to explain adoption and inheritance, he's explaining it not to us in 2019 at Mississippi State. He's explaining it to an audience of – Greeks and Romans, or at least people that were heavily influenced by Greek and Roman society and culture. So he explained it to them in a way that they could understand. He's not saying, hey, women, don't worry, okay? Through Jesus, you can be a son now. Like, that's not an upgrade, okay? Like, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that we all, men and women, share equally in the, in the inheritance of Christ, Remember how earlier I said Galatians 4 tells us that we're all sons and heirs and heirs like with Christ through or with God through Christ or something to that effect. Um, yeah, we're heirs through Christ because we're sons. Well, right before that in Galatians 3, Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but instead we are all one in Christ. He's not, you know, saying that there's no diversity. He's not saying that people aren't different, you know, like God created everyone different. That's amazing. There's there should be unity within an understanding and an affirmation of diversity. But at that time, who you were affected what you could inherit. And what what God's saying is because we're all one in Christ, we're all sons in terms of our legal right. To God's inheritance, and we're all heirs th- through and with Christ. So when you see the Bible talk about sons, it's not talking about sons biologically. It's talking about sons legally. God's, mankind's inheritance was based on who you were. God's inheritance is based on who Christ is, who He is, and who you and who we all are in Him. Um, so to wrap it all up here. The Old Testament shows us that God owned the lives of the firstborn, and they can only be redeemed through sacrifice. 
We see this in this confusing story of God meeting Moses on the way to Egypt, and we see it in the Passover, and we see it in the Mosaic laws concerning the redemption of the firstborn. Yeah, that God takes the firstborn very, very seriously. But the New Testament shows us that God loved us so much that he was willing to send his firstborn son to die as the redemption price for us to make us all firstborn sons. And because of that, we're no longer slaves to sin and death, but we have the freedom to live as children of God. Now, James 2 tells us that faith without without works is dead, right? So being a firstborn of God comes with the responsibility to obey his will. We don't get to just do whatever we want. But Romans 8 tells us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the same way that God told Jeremiah that he would not leave or forsake Israel, he tells us in Hebrews 13 that he will not leave or forsake us. Even when we are actively fighting against him, he won't stop pursuing us. He has redeemed us as firstborn sons and has freed us from slavery to sin to serve as slaves to righteousness. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're going we're kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. We're going from slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. But that's freedom. Because in serving righteousness, in serving God, in living for him, we find the love and the acceptance and the security that we all strive so hard to get through things other than him. Listen, we all want to rest from the constant desire and the constant need to justify ourselves. We all want to be known completely for who we really actually are and loved because of, or for too many of us, for so many of us, in spite of who we actually are. You know, I, I, I did not plan this. I didn't talk about this. But the hymn we sang second, I think, um, Come Ye Sinners, that first verse... Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He's willing. Doubt no more. God wants you to cast off your burdens on him and come take up his yoke. Because he tells us, Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's an invitation, y'all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, thank you for your son. Thank you for um, his blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Thank you, for, um, our, thank you for our adoption. Thank you for our sonship. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the reality of that and live, um, and live confidently in who we are in you. Not because of ourselves. Um, not because of what we do, but because of what you have already done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.